and welcome to Charity Chat. I'm your host, Samuel Davies. In this episode, we speak with Claire Richards and Naomi Rubra about their work at the charity Footwork and how their backgrounds as architects have led them to co-found this charity to support building communities and community cohesion. We learn more about the current process for planning and development and how bringing the voices of the local community can help to influence this for the benefit of those living there. We also touch on themes that are relevant to all of us in our daily lives, such as our environment and our own place in our community. This episode of Charity Chat has been brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Work for Good. Work for Good is a fundraising platform helping businesses raise funds for charities through their sales. The platform makes the legal agreement needed for businesses to fundraise from sales quick and simple, saving charities time and resource and enabling them to raise more unrestricted income. Pop to workforgood.co.uk to learn more and book a free demo. So without further ado, here is Claire Richards and Naomi Rubra speaking to us about amplifying community voices. I'm delighted to be joined today by Claire Richards and Naomi Rubra, founders of Footwork. Let's start off with Claire, if I can start with you. What's your background prior to co-founding Footwork? Ah, well, this is a bit of a, <coughs> a bit of a shaggy dog story, Sam. Um, well, I uh, started out as a documentary filmmaker, and so I was in TV for for quite a long time, and I sort of ended up with that telling stories um, behind the news, really, and um, uh, particularly about social issues uh, up and down the country and um, I suppose then that got me into really um, creating a link between local experience and national issues and um, you know friends would probably say I was a campaigning journalist certainly I've always had a sort of campaigning head on me and uh, um, so in that work, I suppose I uh, researched and uh, saw uh, what it was that made communities thrive, but also fail. And um, I think the only difficulty with making films, and in in you know in the nineties and two thousands, actually documentaries were really well watched on TV. But even then, I realized that, you know, a day or two after you watch a documentary, it's gone. It's very ephemeral. And so doesn't really have a lasting impact. Um, and I sort of came up with this idea that perhaps if I became an architect, uh, went back to university, became an architect, I would be able to address some of the things that I witnessed in those communities. Mm. And I think working with them and telling people's stories, it's very interesting. You get a, I don't know, I got a real respect for the value of um, what people experience on the ground and um, that they sort of bring to communities. Um, And so, I mean, 
I suppose I would perhaps now call that social heritage, but it's the thing that, it's the glue that holds communities together, mm. really. And um, that's how communities have, have always evolved, I think, over time because of the people within them. And so this is the sort of background with which I came to studying architecture. Um, and 10 years later, by then in my 50s, um, I realized that that was very simplistic and that really, um, you know, it's, it's a system that is the, the sort of development system is really quite dysfunctional. And it is, uh, I think, by necessity, many would say, driven by um, commercial interest, mm. not by social interest. Um, but um, as I say, by this time, I had seen this sort of local and uh, knowledge and experience and the, the sort of value that that presented, but, but the development and regeneration system, that doesn't value that kind of experience. And um, rather than, I suppose, finding out uh, about that knowledge and using it to inform what we do, it's, it's rather led to, to a system of rather tokenistic consultation. And it won't surprise you to know that that's not a terribly good way to build trust in the process. And so I think over time, now even, uh, I don't know if Naomi would agree, but I think over time, uh, developers and investors are begin to realize, beginning to realize that actually that lack of trust is, is very damaging. Mm. So I, I sort of switched uh, directions rather, um, not turning my back on architecture. It's fantastic training. You know, and I was really pleased to do it, but but just aware that I was going to have to find another way to try and um, change the experiences that that communities were having on the ground, and it was as a result of that that um, I uh, came up with the idea for Footwork. At that stage, it wasn't a charity. Um, and um, it was a not-for-profit um, mm. and um, headed off in that direction. And so was it, so the work you, the, the uh, documentaries that you started doing, were they, <clears throat> were they U, about UK communities? Were they about, were they more global communities or a bit of both? Well, I mean, uh, I mean, I was, really lucky and went all over the place. So that, that was useful because I suppose I had points of comparison mm. as well. But, but uh, generally, these were UK communities but in all shapes and sizes. Mm. So I discovered some very basic things, that the experiences that people have in rural communities um, are not as different from experiences in urban communities that people seem to think. You know, they share a lot of issues and a lot of qualities. And the same, you know, if you are talking about, um, you know, the north of England or 
the south of England or areas of South Wales. And so I think it's that commonality that is one of the things that is is really important. And with the studying that you did, so you became an architect, you went through that process of understanding architecture. In that process, is is part of the thinking around what does that one building contain? Kind of what, what are the objectives of that building in terms of who is it housing and how is it delivering against their interests? Is that a way of thinking about? Well, I think, I mean, I think this is, this is, um, you know, the crux of it really in that, how should we think about the role of architecture? And I think, you know, uh, architects have always been rather put on a pedestal. And I think, and I remember quite a while back uh, reading something called, called the Community Act, in which mm. it said that the people responsible for transforming communities were architects, planners, uh, developers, um and you know local councillors and and i quickly discovered we don't have that power you can't you talk about taking a building and seeing how it's used if you if you have a failing school mm. pulling it down and building a beautiful new school it's terrific but it won't resolve the issues that mm. caused it to fail in the first place. Right. And so I would turn it around and say the purpose of design in its broadest sense is actually to work with people to understand what is needed and communities hold all of this wonderful knowledge to work with that, with, with people um, collaboratively to create these buildings that are required. And so if you do that, if you have a vacant high street, mm. you know, much better to understand what the local requirements are and work with local people to address that than to come in and say, right, we're going to re regenerate and redevelop your high street or your estate. Naomi, uh, what is your what was your journey that led you to work with Claire to launch the charity uh, Footwork? So I I guess you could say that I came out of architecture school. So Claire and I share that background, and I was maybe more naively bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, thinking perhaps with that sort of pedestal connotation in mind. How can I go out into the world and improve it and help the the people living in cities and towns with new spaces and buildings that will serve their needs? Um, and I think I was traveling the world really, trying to answer that answer that question to do that well. So I found myself in Copenhagen and and in New York and Chicago, desperately trying to find these architects that were in my mind, really meaningfully listening and understanding what mattered on the ground. Mm -hmm. And it was only on returning to London to finish my studies at the Bartlett that I became 
probably, I mean, my peers would probably say I was obsessed, but I got really, really deep into my local community in North London, in the housing estate where I lived. And it was, that presented an opportunity for me to um, really work alongside the uh, quite, quite a lot of older members of my community who'd all managed to secure their homes and a right to buy under Maggie Thatcher. And they were finding themselves growing up now in a, in a 21st century experiencing loneliness and isolation and, and their families had been priced out of that area. And mm. they found themselves in a part of the city where that was inaccessible because of their disability. And these seemed like really fundamental needs. And as Claire's identified the new build the development that's going on down the road wasn't wasn't answering them. It, they weren't coming and speaking to Laura and Ophelia. They were they were being ignored. Mm -hmm. And I guess it was with that deep sense of injustice, social injustice, that I was um, put forward to a very well renowned uh, sort of institution, the RIBA for that piece of work and to be awarded for that piece of work. And they in turn sort of striped a connection between Claire and I, who herself had was at architecture school sort of, you know, 10 years earlier, really operating in a very similar world. So at that mm -hmm. moment, Claire and I began to meet up and, and share ideas and become equally um, frustrated but excited at what we see as the gap that current development and investment in places is just not fulfilling. Mm -hmm. So that's how Claire and I met to answer your to answer your question, Sam, is of the most succinct way I can. Um, and you know, it, it was it was from there really that we thought, right, the issues here are fundamentally because decision-making is occurring from the outside in. Mm. And how can we take a stand, make a, you know, with Claire's campaigning arm in mind, really begin to stand up for what's inside and work out. And we obviously, we, well, we do have an incredibly remarkable opportunity here, which is Claire's family trust which offers us a capital, a runway, an opportunity to have a funding arm mm. that really opens up our tool set in terms of how do we get alongside and really amplify and empower the local knowledge that Claire's talking about um, in these places? Who are they? You know, we, we've seen who they are as sort of around the decision making table as architects, but we were never in a position to be able to get alongside them and support them behind a drawing board. So if footwork in our charity form were to sort of explore this idea and really go at it in a serious way, how do we make the most of our vantage point as architects in our training, but also embrace this? Um, incredible opportunity to empower and amplify that voice and get behind those community agents and actors who we call our local social innovators um, who have the motivation to act um, and get behind them in the most strategic way possible. So that set the groundwork for foot 
I've heard that uh, the late Steve Jobs, when he was pulling together the new Apple building, there was something about putting the toilet block in between the designers and the tech people. And that led them to, that was a deliberate thing that led them to talking and then creating all this innovative stuff that we know as Apple. But, and assuming that is the case, that is true, and I've not misheard that somewhere, which is also possible, but assuming that's true, obviously in that scenario, that is a, a company that's making a decision about kind of a, I suppose we're talking about the same thing, kind of architectural um, design to help their company. But in the work that we're talking about here, it sounds like it's a broader thing with communities. And in terms of, is there a challenge there from where you're sitting around power dynamics is there in terms of if it's steve jobs running a company he can kind of dictate where the toilet block goes but if if what you're doing talking about kind of communities and and communities kind of working better and how architecture is brought into that kind of discussion what are those power dynamics at play there's no question um the power sits with the money in the development world as i as i said and I think also that part of the difficulty is that there's no way in the system as it stands at the moment for people to um, learn, to, to investigate and learn who and what is already in a community mm. and uh, or communities. No one community is made up of you know, a homogenous whole. You know, these are lots of diverse communities. And everybody knows now, I think, how important it is to access um, all of those groups, if one possibly can. But if there's no mechanism for understanding who and what is there, then there is no mechanism for understanding the needs and wishes of mm. those people. And so what happens is that um, a process of consultation doesn't take place until there's a essentially a red line around a site, number one. But number two, there's a design on the table. Uh, number three, there's probably been a negotiation between the local authority and the developer about uh, things like the, the quantity of, of social homes or affordable homes that will go into a project. And so it's not at all surprising that if you combine those two things, one is all of this action, this power base, you know, um, uh, going about its job, if you like, and a community feeling not only that nobody has come to talk to us, um, but actually we have a lot of valid things to say because Naomi was talking earlier about you know this this gap and support for local social innovators and i think it's worth i suspect we all know of innovators who came to the fore during the pandemic for instance you know, there was a lot of evidence there of sort of potential and motivation and the mutual support that happened within communities. And it didn't take us long to realize, but what if one could get these uh, developers, local authorities, actually understanding and talking to um, those 
people who had that experience and motivation on the ground, that, that, that between this, you would have the opportunity to build the trust that at the moment simply doesn't exist. And, and as I said, I think developers are already understanding that with, without that, it, it causes a real problem around the potential for sustainability. So yes, we need to give those communities a voice and that voice, but in, in the process, in the formal process, and that voice has to inform what takes place. I'm sure it sounds a bit idealistic, but I think it does have to, I think it does have to happen. I guess one would think that the local authority would be putting the needs of the community on their agenda, at least somewhere on their agenda, and and that equally for developers, I suppose there's a there's a there's a positive element for them of obviously doing the right thing by communities, but also developing um, in a way that gives them a the profit they need, but also is a win for the community in in different ways as well. Is is that your experience of kind of is that how you're kind of seeing it with the the developers and the um, local authorities, Naomi? So it's. It's working in some instances, and there are more and more ethical developers now coming to the fore who are shaping their business strategy to social impact. And that is seeing and revealing incredible um, rewards, not necessarily in the form of immediate profits, but they are buying into the mindset that this will reap eventual rewards for the longevity and sustainability of this place, because we are investing from the offset in fully understanding and respecting the invisible matter, the social glue that Claire talks about that connects the bricks and mortar, because the bricks and mortar can, can come and go. It can be knocked down, it can be rubble, and it can be a shining skyscraper. But if the social glue is not respected, it's not made visible somehow, then the whole lot will come tumbling down. And that's been very exciting for footwork to be a part of, not as developers, but as companions and collaborators of those developers. And we are finding ourselves as a charity, as both funder architect campaigners, a very useful ally for them because we have an agility and a fleet of footness that allows us to explore, to be on the ground, to uncover the local social innovation that we know is there and is there in so many instances and bring that to the fore. It becomes then evidence. It then becomes visible what was invisible before and it can be taken seriously by these decision makers. A lot of our listeners will be uh, working for charities, volunteering with charities. And, and we've talked before on the show about the benefits of co-designing of projects with beneficiaries or beneficiary-led projects. How do, um, how do you both, how does Footwork start those conversations with the communities that you're working with? We've just recently launched and closed our People and Place Fund. And the reason that this is a very good example of co-creation in a myriad of different ways is that this fund for footwork was a 
really putting our money where our mouth is and going out with a deep intention to uncover and come alongside these local social innovators operating across the UK. And the way we did that was very strategically through local deep-rooted partnerships, um, the eyes and ears on the ground who have that capacity to identify what the contextual nuances are of that place and the people in it who are doing the good work and pointing them to footwork. And we have now managed to, I mean, uh, the most incredible breadth and depth of innovation has come to our door and all of them touch on this point of co-creation. But if I were to hone in on the 10 innovators that we now find ourselves working with, they are taking over the high street and putting it in community hands. They are educating a whole neighborhood in climate resilience. You know, they're co-creating a retrofit guide to salt air homes or removing barriers to ensure that local voices are heard in planning decisions. Now, as you're probably telling, all of these examples would not manifest without co-creation. Those innovators are every day working with their neighbourhood and all the way up to their local decision makers to make that innovation happen. And we have now the incredible privilege, but also responsibility to support them in every way we can, not just monetary. We also are setting up our footholds programme that gives them strategic injections of support. Mm. So they build those building blocks to allow them to do their next step. Um, but it also gives us a responsibility to harness these examples, these incredible case studies to take to our own decision-making tables. And that's, I mean, that's also co-creation. So it's, it's sort of these intricate layers of multiple co-creation happening. Just picking up on that, um, I, I, you know, sometimes people say, well, you know, what is, have these 10, what can they do? Or some of the many other social projects that over, over the years that, that we've um, supported, what can they do to help? And the term Naomi and I use is turn the tanker, if you imagine, uh, you know, a fleet of tiny boats um, is, is what impact can that have? But, but I think it sort of slightly takes me back to the very beginning and those documentaries that I was making and the fact that actually issues identified in one community often are the same or similar issues being identified in another. Mm. And it's not that every project that we support uh, do we think, oh, well, this has the... The, the potential to be replicated, although in some cases, I hope perhaps it might. Um, but that cumulative knowledge, we were talking about how do you access all this knowledge, that cumulative knowledge and other research that we can bring to bear, that is what Naomi sort of was pointing towards, which is then we have the potential to go out there and talk to developers, talk to policymakers, um, talk to other funders who are also quite interested in what we see as a, as frankly, an opportunity. Mm. Why wouldn't we harness? Why wouldn't people 
harness that opportunity. So it's it's connecting, as we said, that local with the the national, the the um, um, hyper local with the, the if you like the micro with the macro, and yeah. and getting those two to work together. Naomi, with so many social and economic challenges in society today, what are Footwork doing to engage with local people? You've already talked about this a little bit. Um, How are you helping them to make positive change in their communities? So we've touched on the People in Place Fund, which is, um, I mean, I won't go back over that now, but I could go into a little more depth into how we are now opening up our field of view Mm -hmm to continue to learn and iterate on our own methodology as proactive funders and collaborators to see the social change that we know we need to be seeing in the way communities are approached. Um, So that field of view is really starting with our innovators. And as of next year, we are beginning to work with them through the Footholds programme. And this is being supported by a network of our facilitators and partners who will be offering these community leaders real input into a knotty problem area they're going through. And so it's with that investment into helping them sort of untangle that knotty problem that we hope that they're then able to go off and deliver their work in the most impactful way possible. Again, this is footwork really building the parachute as we come down to earth, and intentionally so. What we don't want to do is risk falling into the trap we may see much larger funders fall into, and it's it's not necessarily you know, their problem, but we have a unique opportunity to be as responsive and as targeted as we possibly can. And to do that, we need to listen and very proactively learn from the innovators we're collaborating with. And only from their feedback do we know the the support offer that's going to be of most help. So as a method, that's how we see ourselves best helping these community agents that advocacy i think does come in many forms uh, because we you know as Naomi says we we are still learning (laughs) you know uh we've hit the ground running but we're still learning but but with that campaigning hat on and i don't mean you know standing on the barricades trying to you know see who can shout loudest i mean just as Naomi was talking about getting alongside people on the ground and these social innovators. Um, What we also try and do is get alongside those who are trying to um, change the way uh, the built environment is procured, how regeneration takes place, how these conversations with communities take place. Um, uh, We touched on collaboration there. Um, We have a very good collaboration with an organization called Take Note, which was itself uh, an organization um, incubated by footwork. It all becomes a bit incestuous, perhaps. But Take Note um, came up with a wonderful model 
for uh, local organizations, charities and others to collaborate, not only in gaining greater social impact, but in how they apply for funds. And so one of the things that that uh, Take Note has very recently done, uh, which would be available to anybody who would be interested, is a collaboration guide. It's a very straightforward, how do you go about working with others within your community to uh, determine how to have the greatest social impact. And it's literally a step-by-step guide. So it's it's really intended to begin to underpin what we've been talking about here. Claire Richards, Naomi Rubra, thank you for contributing to Charity Chats. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. Big thank you to Claire Richards and Naomi Rubber for joining us for this episode of Charity Chats. When we think about the spaces we live and work in and are drawn to, what appeals to us? What helps us to be the best version of ourselves? In our daily work, whether that's at home or in an office setting, how does it lend itself to working collaboratively, focusing on deep work when we need to, and keeping us motivated and enthusiastic? It's worth thinking about where we are most comfortable, but also where we get our ideas and how our environment can support us in these ways, whether that's a clear or inspiring workspace, the music we play, or the colleagues we speak with on a daily basis. What does a healthy work environment look like to us? Naomi spoke passionately about bringing social innovators forward into the minds of decision makers and the existing planning and development processes. Social innovators who are mindful of the needs of their community and come from that community to help shape the agenda to develop in line with these needs. We all live and work within processes and procedures and often thrive in the muscle memory of our organisations that help to ensure efficiency and that we're as productive as possible. Speaking with Claire and Naomi, it occurred to me that we also need to carve out some time and energy to bring our own innovation to our organisation. We also need to be ever mindful of seeking out new ideas and input from those who see and are affected by the outcomes of our work to help drive change and development to do more good. We need each other increasingly in a world under multiple stresses and a seeming growing division and anger across our society. Though it may feel impossible to make substantial change on our own, it's in our daily lives and daily actions that we have the most consistent power to influence those around us. Whether we work in big cities or small rural communities, we are all part of a community, be it sparse or dense. And in our work, many of us are part of even wider communities and how we choose to interact with others has a drip drip effect on the wider whole. We all have power to do good and harm on a daily basis and it's with this power that we must learn to exercise discipline and be mindful of its impact. For those of us who think often about larger issues in our society, our small decisions may seem inconsequential and sometimes this can lead to a sense of malaise or despondency. But in Claire's words, what can we do to turn the tanker? Positive moves, no matter how small, will make a difference. Maybe not now, but at some point in the future. 
So thank you, dear listener, for getting this far with us. We hope you enjoyed this episode and continue to enjoy the podcast. We'd love to hear either way. Please do like and subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode, plus share with any colleagues or friends who may be interested. It's just left for me to thank our corporate sponsors. This episode of Charity Chat has been brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Work for Good. Work for Good is a fundraising platform helping business businesses raise funds for charities through their sales. The platform makes the legal agreement needed for businesses to fundraise from sales quick and simple, saving charities time and resource and enabling them to raise more unrestricted income. Pop to workforgood.co.uk to learn more and book a free demo. Also, I'd like to thank Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit. Magda Axmit for our beautiful website. Check it out at charitychat.org.uk. Forest of Fools for playing throughout the show and for playing us out right now. That's it from me. Keep on doing what you can. Speak to you soon. Cheerio. Bye-bye.